So bye-bye, Miss American Pie Drove my Chevy to the levee, but the levee was dry And them good old boys were drinking whiskey and rye Singing, this'll be the day that I die This'll be the day that I die Yes, you know that song. Don McLean. Did you write the book of love and do you American Pie. The reason we're going to talk about this here on the Check Your Brain podcast is it uh, hits January of 2022, and we're talking about a song that reached number one 50 years ago this month. And we're going to break it down. Oh, yes. Eight minutes and 42 seconds. A song breaking all of that down. I did this on an earlier podcast on my Patreon, by the way. Uh, it's Tony Mazer, and I have a Patreon called Check Your Brain. It's uh, patreon.com slash Tony Mazer if you want to subscribe for as little as $5 a month. And depending on where you go, I used to say that you could actually buy a beer for about the price that it is to uh, subscribe to my podcast. But if you like craft beer, that one beer you get is more expensive than listening to at least 20 to 25 podcasts a month, plus early access to guests and early access to uh, question and answers and you know anything else. Ask me anything type of stuff. So, uh, and my rants and ravings and everything. And one of my rants recently I did was I broke down the song American Pie by Don McLean. And as soon as I got done with that, it was almost like somebody's watching my Google history. Hmm. And as soon as I did that, I got an email and talking about this interview possibility with somebody who actually did a book of essays on American Pie and breaking it down and interpreting it. And I'm like, oh, that's perfect. This is perfect, it's just perfect timing for me to, to do that. And so my guest today is Dr. Raymond Shuck. He is from Bowling Green State University, the Firelands campus. And uh, he actually wrote a book, co-authored with his father, who's a history professor at Ohio University. And it's called, Do You Believe in Rock and Roll? And there are eight essays interpreting the lyrics to American Pie. And that's what we do in this a whole podcast. So it's kind of fun. It's kind of interesting. A song that you've heard for 50 years or whenever, or maybe you heard the Madonna version. Ugh, God. <laughs> I don't know. But it, it, we, so we, we get into talking about this, and but not only about the song, but about the culture at the time. So the song's written in 1971. What was going on in the country in 1971? What led up to 1971? The, the end of the 60s, the Vietnam War, the cultural impact, what music was like, what art in general was going on. Uh, it, it was, so we get into a lot of that. So it's not just talking about the song, but the mood around 1971-72 when the song was uh, released and eventually hit number one. So I hope you enjoy this podcast with my guest today, Dr. Raymond Shuck from BGSU Firelands. And we really, really dig into the cultural impact of American Pie, which celebrates its 50th anniversary this month. I am here with you talking about a an interesting subject that I've covered on my podcast for a, a long time, and I've been very interested in not just an artist, not just an album, but a song. So why does a song carry on so much credence, so much weight, so much mystery for decades and we're talking about a song that's now five decades old it's celebrating its 50th anniversary around this time it was released 
1971, back in October, hit number one on the charts in January of 1972, and it's January of 2022. And that song is American Pie by Don McLean. And, uh, you know, it's a song that I think all of us know. You know the lyrics, at least to the, uh, you know, the refrain of the song. You might have heard somebody try to sing a karaoke or... Or if you're one of the old radio DJs, that was one great song you put on for a smoke break. So you put on a, a this song that's nine minutes long. You go outside and have a, a quick puffs of Cowboy Killers and then head back into the studio. And, hey, look, it's still going, and we'll just put on another record. But American Pie, 50 years uh, hit number one this month. And uh, I'm joined by Dr. Raymond Shuck from uh, Bowling Green State University, the Firelands campus over in Huron, Ohio. And uh, Dr. Shuck, thanks so much for joining us. And this song, because I, I've had a, a an attachment to the song for a long time myself, but not only have you talked about it, you collaborated in a book of essays with your father about uh, the interpretation of this song. First of all, uh, uh, talk about a little bit about what got you into this before we get into really starting to break down what this song is about. Sure, yeah. Thanks for having me on. And uh, so my, my dad and I were talking, and he had— he had done a little bit of research on the song, and we got to talking about how there really wasn't a lot of uh, scholarship out there that really looked at, or, or you know, just interpretation out there that looked at why why this song was so significant, what it means. You know, there, there's been all these discussions for years about, for decades, about what what does this line mean, what does this line mean, and 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 what does the song in general mean? And we got to talking about it, and we're like, you know, there really needs to be a book. So we we put together, we got some folks to write some essays, and we put together a book of essays to talk about uh, not only the interpretation, but then also the cultural significance of of the song. So uh, first, before we get into talking about uh, truly into the song, so you have this, you have Don McLean, who was coming out of the realm of the 1960s and the folk era that Mm -hmm. uh, we were seeing, and he comes out with this song where it's, I mean, it's his magnum opus. It's where you start to look around at, uh, what, like the, you know, there are so many artists that want to have that one big hit. Some of them are, you know, they they wished it was another song, but this song just played so much significance. Like he had Vincent was a very good song and a, right, a couple right. others, but this is the one that really took off for him. I, I guess talk a little bit about Don McLean. And, uh, and then as we head towards the end of the interview a little bit later, I want to talk about his, how he's interpreted the song and how uh, he's kind of evaded questions and basically said that the, the song speaks for itself. Sure. Yeah, and he does. He, he, he's pretty coy about the whole thing, says, you know, just means I never have to work again. And, uh, but he, you know, they're very clearly seen. This, this is, I mean, first of all, this is a song, it's not your standard pop fair, right? This isn't a, oh, I'm in love with somebody or something like that. This is, you know, there's clearly some work went into the lyrics of this song, the imagery, the metaphors in this song. And so uh, this is, he was, he's the baby boomer generation, uh, born in the, born in the forties, uh, the late forties and grew up, you know, came, came of age as rock and roll was, was uh, developing in the late 1950s. And as you said, that, that he had that folk rock connection and that influence on rock and roll. And the song begins with Buddy Holly dying in 1959, that significant event. And that's sort of this event that sort of, uh, as he says, the day the music died, that sort of starts the, the change of things. And so the song is really then about, you know, how music really cha- changed over that decade from the late 50s to the late 60s or into about 1970. And he's, he's grown up with this. He, he grew up in, in uh, upstate New York. 
it's got the, the reference to Rye, New York in the, in the refrain, and he was in, from New Rochelle, which is close to there. And so I think this really is an experience of somebody who is attached to that folk rock, uh, rock and roll element, and then seeing it really change into things that he didn't really uh, at least identify with or even agree with by the early 70s. And then this becomes a song that, that represents that, that experience and the loss that he feels along with that. When you talk about the song itself and being, because it's a very long song, and I know in on, on my radio station, we have two versions of it, of course, the longer version, and then one that cuts off, I think, after two verses, which I, I it mm-hmm. kills the song for me, because it, <laughs> I, like, I, this is one of the things that really bothers me in my years of working in radio, is that there are certain songs that I love and that they have to really cut short, and I understand some of it is, you know, for commercial purposes and mm-hmm. you know I, I, uh, I one pet peeve i have is when i hear classic rock stations have the song uh, sultans of swing by dire straits one oh, of yeah. my favorite completely overplayed classic rock songs but the guitar solo yep. from mark knopfler at the end is is amazing and it's getting cut off yep. i'm like that's the only part that's the only reason i'm <laughs> listening to this song so but in those days you did have longer songs with album oriented rock and and folk where you weren't necessarily making sure that your song is going to be three and a half, four minutes, and it's got to be commercial. You got to hit this and that. You had the wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald by Gordon Lightfoot yep. later on in the seventies was a number one song. And uh, it, it's a song. It's amazing because when you hear it now and I play it for my friends and I'm like, really, Tony, you're playing Gordon Lightfoot, right? You're playing the wreck of the Edmund <laughs> Fitzgerald. I'm like, it's the anniversary. It's November 10th. And you know, wh- whatever the case is, you at least had songs in those days, especially on album-oriented rock, but also on pop charts that did go over five minutes, that were over six minutes. This one almost eclipses 10 minutes. I mean, there are certain songs I think about in those days, like uh, Greengrass and High Tides was over 10 minutes, Freebird, of course, or any Leonard Skinner or Led mm-hmm. Zeppelin song. And this song is just kind of another one of those where it's not necessarily an AOR type of song, but it does... It, it says a lot in those 10 minutes that you really, you can't cut it up. You have to keep the whole context. Yeah, I think I think you've hit on a number of great points there. And uh, a couple of the essays in our book uh, speak to that idea that there, this was a time of experimentation, right? That idea of that, that sort of three-minute pop song. I mean, it was still there, but there was a lot of stuff going on in the, the, the late 60s and then throughout the 70s where folks were, they were experimenting with all kinds of, uh, you know, you had prog rock and all kinds of other stuff. And like you said, that that's not where McLean was, but it was similar in that sense of there was all this, let's, let's see what music can do. And one of the, the, the consequences of that was we had these, these songs that were, were long and they were, they were meant to be long. And as you said, yeah, you cut off this song in the middle and you've lost, I mean, you've lost the feel of the song. You've lost the heart of the song. In fact, um, my essay in the book talks about uh, Weird Al Yankovic's remake uh, or parody of it <laughs> from 1999, where he, he takes the this, this story of Star Wars The Phantom Menace, which is about to come out in the theaters, or just came out in the theaters in 99, and he, he basically sets the story of Star Wars, or at least that movie, to this. And you know, my argument is that this, this song creates a template, or stands as a template, for how you tell an epic tale, right? So if I've got this really long epic tale to tell i mean i can go back to old middle ages stuff like rhyme of the ancient mariner or something like that but but i can you know i can i got something contemporary here and that's tied to american identity and and i can i can build out of that and so that's exactly what weird al did and it worked 
And so, yeah, if you cut off that song in the middle, you you lost what the song's all about. Yeah, and and you're not talking about these brill building type of songs that are you know right. quick quick to the you know the the Archies, and you're not having uh, Carol King and doing I mean going basically from nine to five in the brill building in Manhattan and p- pumping out these three minute songs that ended up being obviously catchy earworms, but like you said, out of the counterculture in the late 60s, early 70s, you saw the experimentation, and that's where your um, you know, Grand Funk Railroad had the I'm Your Captain mm-hmm. song that was like 10 minutes and Deep Purple. So by the 70s, you were getting into that. Now, a lot of that also probably had to do with uh, illicit drug use, I would assume. <laughs> right. But, uh, I, I, but that's the interesting background of Don McLean is I, I don't really know of him of being you know, a, a big-time drug user, but... You know, he has also had a complicated past and, uh, you know, as of a couple mm-hmm. of years ago, fairly recent recent past as well. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, yeah. And I, and I, yeah, I don't know, you know, I mean, it, the, you know, use of some types of material, some types of uh, drugs and stuff was part of the, the music culture and the, in folk rock culture at the time even, too. So, but yeah, we don't know anything in terms of that, but it was certainly, and it, it was certainly, um, spoke to the times and I, I think you're 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 dead on talking about that that time period really brought that and I even think about you know that there were there were things uh you, know, you had uh, even in different across different genres so like in funk you had these long songs that you know that that took from that same kind of spirit of you know we're not just going to be held down to a three three and a half minute song we're going to try to make this uh a, a fuller experience than that but and I think he was right there with even that. in funk music, though, what they did is that they're the they were the pioneers. It seemed that you would go from what it is kind of nowadays of we're going to put out a long version. So like Roger Troutman and Zap mm-hmm. or something can put out a 10 minute song mm-hmm. for the club or for your home and you put it on record. But if it's in the car, they're able to cut it off in a certain place where it's not going to ruin, obviously, the context or the party. It's just, hey, look. You know, radio stations are like, hey, is there any way you can cut this a little bit? We got to get to our commercials and our this, our giveaways and all that kind of stuff. But funk kind of was one of those. But, you know, a, a lot of these like American Pie, like you said, you got to keep the context of the song. And uh, because if you cut it off, it really does ruin this. It, it's almost like nowadays where if you do hear a four minute version of I, I mean, you think about if you cut Stairway to Heaven off. If you cut Stairway to Heaven off at about four or five minutes, all it is is just basically an acoustic track, and then and then you're in a commercial. It 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 you know when the when the band really starts winding up and you hear John Bonham on drums and you know yep. uh, John Paul Jones and then of course uh, you have Jimmy Page with the guitar solo. Of, of course you're going to want to hear more of that, and you know that, that's one thing that you start looking back at the '70s and some of this. Uh, music and how they were really pioneers of that artistic feel to it. I mean, you know, it, but obviously it also dates back a little bit earlier where uh, in the contrast of what we were mentioning about some of those, you know, kind of cornier 60s bubblegum pop music, you also had Inagata Davida. <laughs> right. Right. So, yeah, I, I think of in, whenever you start talking about long songs, I think of Inagata Davida. And I mean, it didn't hit number one, but it was a top 40 hit. And, mm-hmm. it, you know, it's the, the sort of uh, stand, you know, the, the, the marker of Okay, here's a long song that people still listen to, and that got got airplay. and And I think your point about funk is, is well put. Uh, this, you know, I, I think of uh, uh, Prince's first uh, big hit, "I Want to Be Your Lover," and it's got that extended uh, uh, instrumental part at the end that's really jamming. But you know, it gets cut off for radio. 
so that they can they can just uh, have that that three to four minute experience. And I think I think you're 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 right about that. And that speaks to the um, the, the context of what these songs were produced for. You know, in a, at a party, you, you want that that long jam that kind of goes on, but then you can cut it for radio, and that they didn't care so much about that. But then songs like American Pie. I mean, this is meant to be some kind of commentary. And like you said, um, you know, you've got uh, songs like that, Stairway to Heaven, et cetera, where these are meant to be longer plays. And what we're talking about is true art. And all of this, whether it's funk, whether any any type of music is, is art. And one thing about art, whether you go into a museum, you listen to a, uh, any kind of music, is it's left up to interpretation for the the person who is listening or viewing it and that's what was interesting about American Pie and I remember as a kid that I knew the chorus I didn't know what was going on like all this other stuff I, I don't know if he's telling a story if he's t you know fables whatever the case is I just remember my mom would we, we went over to a coconuts music back in the day and she bought the cassette mm -hmm. tape and we would listen to it constantly and I'd be like, oh, God, not this song again. This song lasts forever. And then I started <laughs> listening to the lyrics. And you know, everybody, like I said, everybody knows the chorus. So uh, if if we wanted to, it, let's let's do our version of w what we're interpreting and what how kind of I interpret it compared to how you would and some other uh, contemporaries would as well. But uh, I, I wanted to ask you about the, the chorus here. So who are we talking about when we say bye-bye Miss American Pie? Because... A lot of people will figure: Are we talking about Marilyn Monroe? Are we talking about you know, it, like who? Like what has drove my Chevy to the levee, but the levee was dry? And you said, you know, uh, the good old boys drinking whiskey and rye from New York, singing, "This will be the day that mm -hmm. I die. This will be the day that I die." So I, I think a lot of people, when they first heard it, figured the whole song had to do with Buddy Holly and the Big Bopper and Richie Valens, but that was only just one piece of it. So uh, talk about the chorus, mm -hmm. if you can. Yeah, so there's there's no real set answer on Miss American Pie, and again, you know, McLean won't tell anybody what 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 is if that's is that a reference to a specific person? Like you said, is that is that Marilyn Monroe? Is that Jackie Kennedy? Is that you know any number of folks who this could be, um, or, or is it just uh, just America herself? Right, the idea of the the country embodied as as a person and oftentimes used uh, with a, a female pronoun. So this is America herself. Or is it rock and roll? Is it is it that feeling of the, the American music of the late fifties? So there's no real good answer, and I don't I don't even know that I have a good answer. I mean, our book has a couple of different interpretations of that in it. Um, so I, I tend to think of it as the, the broader. Okay, I'm saying goodbye to America, the America that I think I knew. And then she, he dro drove my Chevy to the levee, but the levee was dry. And the idea, you know, Chevy. You know, uh, baseball, hot dogs, apple pie, and Chevrolet, right? This is, you know, one of the all-American cars. Uh, and so that's what I drive to the to the levee, but the levee was dry. Uh, so, uh, you know, I go down where, where we'd celebrate, but, you know, the dry could mean, well, there's just no cause for celebration, or it could mean, well, you know, it's dry in the sense of, you know, um, laws against drinking alcohol, right? That, you know, the, hey, we went down to the levee to celebrate and drink alcohol, but we're not allowed to do that anymore, right? So... Uh, so it could be that, it, it, but either way, it plays out this idea that, uh, you know, hey, we, we got together and there just wasn't cause for celebration. So we end up, you know, the good old boys drinking whiskey in Rye. It, it's not whiskey and Rye. It's whiskey in Rye, New York. So mm. we're the, I'm, I'm back with these these folks, the, the good old boys, you know, the, the, the old crowd that we hang out with. We're, we're, we're doing this. 
and singing, this will be the day that I die. This will be the day that I die. And, you know, the idea that we're just kind of, okay, well, uh, you know, everything's kind of not what we wanted it to be. And it, it's kind of, it's almost like, you know, it's a standard uh, refrain that we see in a lot of pop music. Like think of uh, Bruce Springsteen's glory days from the 1980s, right? You know, I'm going to go down to the well tonight and drink till I get my fill, but I guess when I get home, I'll sit around, you know, thinking about it, but I probably will, right? You know, just trying to remember the glory days, but, you know, he's, as he says at the end, time slips away and leaves you with nothing, mister, but boring stories of glory days, right? The idea that we're going to try to have this experience again and live this up, and, and but we're there, and it's just kind of like, oh, you know, things just aren't the same anymore. And, and that seems to be the spirit of the whole song and the tale that he tells from Buddy Holly on through the, you know, the Rolling Stones and everything at the late, late 1960s throughout the song. The one thing that I guess we can all agree on is that, or at least most of us, and again, like you said, Don McLean is not going to come out and tell us that. I mean, we may never know until he eventually passes away, is that mm-hmm. what what is going on throughout the song is it seems like these events are taking place sometime between when the plane crashed in 1959 to about the time the song came out in 1971. So it was, it was released in 71 and it was recorded in mm-hmm. an earlier portion of 71. So what it sounds like is, you know, you, you go from, uh, you know, dancing in the gym, kicked off your shoes, mm-hmm. uh, teenage bronc and buck with a pink carnation and pickup truck. So it almost it has that mm-hmm. feeling of we're coming out of the 50s, we're going to the sock hops, and we're going to the malt shop, and she has my ring and my letterman jacket and everything. Then you have another <laughs> chorus. But then after that, it really seems like, okay, now we're here in the 1960s, and this isn't the sock hops anymore. I mean, we're talking about mm-hmm. a lot of stuff going on. So when it says now for 10 years we've been on our own and moss grows fat on a rolling stone. Now, here we are, we're mm-hmm. going to t- a lot of what it. I think a lot of people agree on is a lot of blatant references towards Bob Dylan. Well, uh, yeah, the, the um, you know, that Rolling Stone. So the Bob Dylan connection, uh, McLean let it slip at one point that the, that uh, years ago that the jester, when he refers to the jester in the song, that that's Bob Dylan. And it's one of the, the few pieces of information that we've been able to to kind of call from the interpretation of it. The Rolling Stone later, it can be Bob Dylan, but then it, it becomes much clearer later that he, he starts referring to the Rolling Stones when he talks about, my hands were clenched in fists of rage, no angel born in hell, right? Hell's angels mm-hmm. to break that Satan smell, spell, that, that this is about Ultimont in, the, in 1969 right. when, you know, the, the riot broke out, and, you know, somebody was killed and Hell's Angels, you know, were, were quote unquote security. Right. And and this is Mick Jagger up on stage. And so the you know, the, the moss growing on the Rolling Stone is a on the one hand, like a Rolling Stone from uh, um, from Bob Dylan. On the other hand, the band, the Rolling Stones and him looking at this and saying, this is, yeah, like you said, this is this isn't the sock cops of the late 50s. This isn't the the, the just sort of pure enjoyment of music that I I met as a kid in the late fifties and that I wish I could still kind of feel. Yeah. The jester, he mentions him a couple of times in the song and uh, one of them being on the sidelines in a cast. And what that was in reference Mm -hmm. to was him getting into a motorcycle accident. And when Woodstock was happening, I I could, I think I'm, I think I remember this correctly, but uh, that they actually created Woodstock and, and, placed it where his home was, not too far away from it, in case he wanted to make an appearance. He, ended, he did not make an appearance at Woodstock talking about Bob Dylan, but uh, a lot of that, you know, the jester. And then there's the other one, the jester sang for the king and queen. 
And there's a lot of mm-hmm. uh, people wondering what the king, mm-hmm. who the king and queen are, or if the king and queen was a pub that Bob Dylan sang at overseas. Like, is he actually singing for a king and queen, or the king and queen is it? Or and then they mention the king a couple other or another time. Is the king Elvis, or is the king right. and queen John F. Kennedy and Jackie O? So this is again, we're talking about great art here, and it's left up to interpretation. So. We're giving our interpretation of what we think is going on. But like you said, there are a couple of little bits, a little Easter eggs that pop up there where we're like, okay, I think that seems like it's pretty pretty feasible here. Yeah, yeah, I, and, and you're exactly right. That king and queen is just like the uh, the three men I admire most at the end. These are the, the lines that get the most uh, focus when we think about, okay, what are the interpretations? And there are all kinds of different interpretations. As you said, it could be, you know, the king and queen could be um, uh, John F. Kennedy and, and, and Jackie Kennedy. It could be, uh, it could be Elvis and Aretha Franklin. It could be, like you said, the pub, you know, that, that Dylan played at. And there's just no, um, there's no set answer uh, to that. And, and then the same thing happens with the, the three men I admire most at the, at the end. Well, okay, is that the, you know, the other members of Buddy Holly's band? Is that uh, other folk influences like the Weavers? Is that, you know, somebody else that, that, that he's referring to here? And we just don't know. And, and McLean doesn't tell us. It's amazing. It, like, I'm looking at the lyrics, and I, I hope people who are listening to just pull, pull them up. And, like, I'd love to hear your interpretations, what people think. But these are, again, these are ones that have been – discussed for the last 40 plus years now and it's really interesting and you know uh, and, I, and I'm just basically in a way kind of you know we're kind of going back and forth but I'm kind of like keeping it a little more going down the list so when you say and while Lenin read a book on Marx Lenin's another one of those is he talking about mm-hmm. Vladimir Lenin or is he talking about John Lenin who was right. you know in, in those days especially in the mid to late 60s was Kind of looking and you know expanding his mind a little bit and reading a book on Karl Marx or or did or who knows maybe John Lennon met with Groucho Marx we we don't know exactly <laughs> it's it's interesting yeah a little a little early for Richard Marx but yeah um, that's true yeah. But yeah exactly that's, 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 yeah he was a little kid at the time he's but, my but he's yeah, my favorite Marx that... brother next to Harpo <laughs> mine too I'm a I'm a big Richard Marx fan so. Uh, uh, and, he, and he's really fun on Twitter too. So, but um, but yeah, that, that idea that Lenin books Mark, that's exactly one. You know, is it L E N I N or is it L E N N O N? And and McLean never quite let, lets us know. And and I think that you know this all goes back though to the the interpretation becomes part of the the significance of it, right? That that becomes part of its lasting uh, memory is that it connects to people in these different ways. And so these different interpretations allow different people to connect in different ways. And it all then goes back to, and you talked about this and this, and we've talked about this, this idea that in the late, in the early seventies, people were looking back and they, they were looking at, you know, things aren't the same as they were. And I think part of the popularity of the song, we can really think about that, that um, there was a lot of that going on at that time period. In the early seventies, you, you had American graffiti, just you say had that, happy yep. days. You had um, even um, the book, The Boys of Summer, became a bestseller. That was about the old Brooklyn Dodgers who left Brooklyn in the late 50s and moved to Los Angeles. And it was kind of seen as this, you know, this was back when baseball was even better. And and even had like, you know, MASH was 1972. And yeah, that's it's about the Korean War, but in a lot of ways, it's commentary on the Vietnam War. And so you had a lot of reflection. And I think uh, especially among baby boomers who were coming of age, right? They were in their 20s. Uh, almost, almost starting to get to the 30s, but certainly in the mid to late 20s, 
and they were looking back and saying, boy, you know, we remember the late 50s and we remember this time period and Happy Days, American Graffiti really played off of this. You know, that that idea that that uh, we long for for a little bit of that feeling that we had then and things just aren't the same. And this song really hit right at that same time period. And I think that that's that's part of it. And so all these different interpretations allow people that uh, you mentioned Easter eggs, right? That's part of the fun of it is that you, you see these these texts, these references to other texts. And that's what helps bring people into the song. And and wait a minute. So if that's that, then this is this. And and and, and it all goes right all together into that 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 phenomenon that people feel. That's fascinating because, I, I you know, I'm born in I was born in 1988. So I didn't live this okay. era. I grew up in the 90s and the 2000s. So you know, and I've seen cultural divides that have happened, but none more so obviously than what we were seeing out of the counterculture in the 60s and the 70s, because you mentioned MASH and MASH deliberately was, like you said, talking about Korea, but in reality it was talking about what was going on at the time in Vietnam. Whereas just a few years mm-hmm. earlier you had, granted it was a goofier show, but it was Gomer Pyle, USMC, and they don't mention one thing about Vietnam, even though that's... We, we all know what they're right. talking about. So it, it, then, then what happened is, and you, as you probably know, but uh, Fred Silverman was in charge at uh, CBS at the time, and you had a lot of these shows like Green Acres and Petticoat Junction, and uh, a, a lot of the what they called, you know, the the farm TV. And by about 1970, 71, they all got canceled at that point. And mm-hmm. Fred Silverman was looking in terms of tapping into Norman Lear and getting a lot more socially conscious. Uh, coming-of-age stuff that was happening in the early 70s from All in the Family, The Jeffersons, Good Times, a lot of these uh, big shows uh, that dominated in the 70s. But also what were popular in the 70s was going back again, and that's why The Waltons, that's why Little House on the Prairie were massive shows because people are like, look, I I don't really want to watch social commentary right now. I just want to sit back. I liked Green Acres. It was silly. Arnold Ziffel the Pig and... You know, uh, it was supposed to be silly. We didn't want to just be reminded of this. And I think, like you said, going back in time of, man, things were just more simpler back in the day. And the people pine for nostalgia. Now, what's big nowadays is nostalgia. It's just, I mean, that's why every reboot, Cobra Kai is one of the top streaming shows in the country right right now because people remembered the 80s. Uh, All these reboots, Sex and the City has been rebooted. Uh, Saved by the Bell Mm -hmm. has been rebooted. Nostalgia is huge. And you know, in 19, even though granted it wasn't that long ago from 71 to 59, but still it really just almost seemed like it was two separate countries in that time. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think your, your point about nostalgia is, is spot on here. And, and I think, as you said, it was only, you know, you were only talking 11, 12 years here, but it was that so much happened during the sixties, as you said, that, that countercultural revolution, the escalation of the Vietnam War, the civil rights movement, there's so much that happened and that generational um, um, gap that happened between um, the baby boomers and their parents' generation that even in that, that just over a decade, so much happened that it felt like a long time in, in terms of social development, right, in terms of, of our culture and our society developing. And what's interesting is that or at least one thing that's interesting is that since then as you said we we still have nostalgia today and i i'm a i'm, I'm a generation x i was actually born in 72 when one you know just uh, later in the year after the song hit number one and uh I, i'm part of this right you know i just saw uh, a couple months ago or a month or so ago about 
uh, one of my favorite shows in the 80s was Head of the Class, and they've remade that and kind of Disneyfied it a little bit. And, and it, you know, and then, like you said, you've got uh, the, the Karate Kid thing with Cobra Kai and this nostalgia thing. And so to me, and part of um, my work with this and my, my chapter in the book was saying the same thing happens with Star Wars. And that's what, you know, that Weird, Weird Al Yankovic, that Star Wars thing fits so well. Because in the late 70s and mid-70s, mid when Luke, George Lucas was putting Star Wars together, I mean, he really wanted to tap into his own experience, which was, I mean, he was the one who did American Graffiti. He was into car culture, and he remembered that Westerns were so big in the 50s and in and early 60s, and he wanted something that was like that. And he looked at space and said, that's it. That's the frontier. That, and we already had that with uh, Star Trek and, uh, uh, you know, other texts like that. And so here was Star Wars telling this epic tale that was in some ways nostalgic, right, to this old experience of the frontier, and even begins with a long time ago in a, a galaxy far, far away. In other words, this actually happened in the past, and it really spoke to that that sort of fun. Like you said, that people wanted something that just felt real and fun and 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 that they could just kind of enjoy, and yet Star Wars made it new because it was also about going forward into space, and so they really kind of fit, and to me, um, what rock and roll was to the baby boomers, right? This this cultural phenomenon that really helps define the generation. To me, Star Wars is that for the for Generation X. You know, and with so you... I think. No, yep. go ahead. No, I was just going to say, just going to end and say that you know. So I think this generational connection is really important to the to the song to American Pie. And and generational uh, and and the cultural impact of generations is interesting as well. So I'm like I said, I'm born in '88, so I'm considered a millennial. But I'm one of the mm -hmm. older millennials, I guess, where I, I remember life before, you know, I remember going to Blockbuster Video. I remember life where you <laughs> couldn't use the telephone if you were using the Internet. I remember a time when we didn't have Internet. So uh, but somebody who was born in, say, 1994, 95, lot different society that they were growing up with YouTube and, and smartphones, and everything when they were just little kids. And I, I was well into high school by the time I got a phone. And you kind of saw that with other generations as well. And, you, and you're kind of smack dab in the middle of that Gen X split of the older Gen Xers mm -hmm. and the younger Gen Xers, where it's almost like it's two different generations in one. And baby boomers were the same way. So somebody born in, you know, 1945 is going to be a lot different than someone born in 1962. And that's where I, there is a definite cultural divide that we were kind of seeing there, especially by the 1970s. Yeah, yeah, I think you're exactly right. I mean, you think about late uh, baby boomers, you know, born in 60, 61. I mean, this is the American Pie is not their experience. You know, they they grew up with the Beatles and the Stones and the Who and and uh, and um, Sly and the Family Stone and all that other stuff. And, you know, Buddy Holly was, had passed away before they were even they were even born. And uh, and you're right. I'm I'm literally right dab in the middle of uh, uh, of Generation X. And it's funny. My brother, who's five years younger than me, and I will sometimes have really interesting different touch points to music. Uh, I remember in the mid '90s there was a song. Uh, SWV had a song where they sampled Michael Jackson's "Human Nature," and mm. it came on the radio. And we were in the car, and he was like, "Oh, cool, SWV," and I was like, "Oh, cool, Michael Jackson." And you know, we're we're literally, you know, we're literally separated by five years. And and uh, he's still Gen X like me, but he's very late Gen X. And as you said, millennials, you know, that, that covers a really big time frame from the early 80s right to the late 90s. And the, as you said, the, the, the cultural experiences are so different. And so it, this really kind of speaks to sort of what parts of those generations get sort of amplified and get um, promoted. And so 
again, you know, when we think baby boomers, it tends to be this, oh, born in the late 50s, early, or, sorry, late 40s, early 50s, and grew up in the 50s and 60s. But to late boom, boom, baby boomers, that's not even their experience. Yeah, I heard Dua Lipa do a cover recently, uh, or do a song that sampled the song White or White Town's "Your Woman," and I'm like, oh, White Town. I'm like, oh, this is not yep. White. This is not White Town. So it's, <laughs> but but again, it's it's the kids who are nowadays who are listening to Dua Lipa, and then the parents are like, oh yeah, I know this too. So maybe they can kind of get into it, and that's uh, that's what's yep. that's, that's that cultural divide there. It's uh, that's that difference. But hey, you know, whatever. As long maybe if it gets the younger kids to go like, oh, I like this White Town song. It's pretty cool. Uh, so getting back to American Pie, um, so we get to the, the part where they, it, it seems like we're really heating up in the mid to late 60s right now. Uh, and again, in, in our interpretation, Helter Skelter in a summer swelter, the birds flew off in a fallout shelter. And Helter Skelter, you know, whether you know, you're talking about the actual song or the, the Manson murders and the Manson family, uh, the summer swelter, we talk about the summer of love, the birds, is it? B I R D S or B Y R D S of the band, and uh, it, you know, eight miles high and falling fast. It landed on the grass. The je- the players tried for a forward pass with the jester and the sidelines and a cast. So you could be talking about grass, Woodstock. You know, there's a lot of interpretations that you can look at here, but it really seems when you the, the word that I see there is summer, and I think of summer of love. You're talking about '67. Yeah, yeah, he's really. Uh... By this point in the song, he's in the late 60s, and you're getting to, to 67 and then eventually to 69 with Woodstock and Ultimat and stuff. And, and you're right. I mean, a lot of these these references, as you said, Helter Skelter, you know, clearly has either a Manson reference or a Beatles reference, right? The birds, as you said, it, you know, it's, it's birds, but is it the band? Um, and Eight Miles High certainly makes, you know, make, makes that connection as well. And, and even, as you mentioned, the grass, well, is that, you know, yeah, the grass is summer and we're, we're playing the fields with people sitting on the grass or, again, is that another drug reference? And, and so um, this becomes more sort of, you know, you don't even know if he had a necessarily specific things that he was, specific events in the story that he was telling at this point, or if he's just throwing a whole bunch of cultural references in there that he's clearly people are going to get. And, and some of them have double meanings. And so it just makes it all the more fun. And, and I think at this point we're, we, you know, we don't know, but it's it certainly, that's part of the equation of trying to interpret this. And then you mentioned 1969. Uh, and then we were all in one place, a generation lost in space with no time left to start yep. again. So come on, Jack, be nimble, Jack, be quick. Jack flash sat on a candlestick because fire is the devil's only friend. And again, you were talking about the Rolling Stones, and when you hear Jumpin' Jack Flash, devil, sympathy for the devil, it, you know, it, these, are, these are things that, again, we're, we're excruciatingly breaking this down, but it's a, it's a timepiece right now. It really seems like a time capsule that you're looking back in, and especially with Altamont. Uh, something that, and I wanted to ask you about that, because, and then when you say, and as I watched him on the stage, my hands were clenched in fists of rage. No angel born in hell could break that Satan spell, and as flames climbed high into the night, uh, to the light, to light the sacrificial rite, I saw Satan laughing with the light of the day the music died. And it, what's interesting about Altamont is, I, I'm sure there's documentaries out there, but for just two years or two and a half years ago was when the 50th anniversary of Woodstock of 69 came out. And, you know, it was all about, oh, it was great. And the Flower Children and this band played and Jimi Hendrix and Janis Joplin, all that. 
And you never hear about Altamont. And Altamont was supposed to be the West Coast version of Woodstock. That they were like, hey, you know, not everybody can flock from, uh, you know, Haight-Ashbury and go all the way across the country to upstate New York. So let's have our own type of Woodstock. But it almost seems like, I don't want to say it's been deleted from memory, but even when I started researching this, this was years ago, I never knew anything about Altamont. I never heard about it. I never heard anybody talking about it. Uh, unless you watch the Gimme Shelter documentary that came out a year later. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. Why is it that we just kind of forgotten about it? Does it not like play into the narrative of like the flower children that it was actually a very violent and, uh, you know, you talk about the Hells Angels and you talk about the, uh, the, well, the reason that one of the Hells Angels stabbed the guys, the guy actually had a gun. And whether he was actually going to shoot Mick Jagger, he's going to shoot the guy who took his girl, whatever the, whatever the case was, it's just odd how Altamont is never brought up anymore. Yeah, yeah, I think I think your your point about the narrative is key on here. That it's as you said, this was meant to be, you know, the the spirit of Woodstock. Hey, let's as you said, do this on the West Coast, and and that's of course the the reference to Candlestick is you know Candlestick Park in in San Francisco. So this is the the West Coast version of this, and this is Stones. Uh, playing here and that yeah when when everything when everything hit the fan at, at Altamont it was the Stones were playing and that the the the, the one guy was uh, you know the theory is that he um, was jealous of Mick Jagger that his girlfriend was you know uh, you know looking at Mick Jagger and just in, entranced by Mick Jagger and that he he got jealous and was probably high and or was high and and you know started to rush the stage and uh, and Hell's Angels had been hired as security you know and so the idea that um, this in some ways was set up to, to be problematic from the beginning, right. That you're going to have, uh, you know, hell's angels as security that you're going to have the stage. The stage was very low you know, Woodstock, they were actually up on a, you know, a raised stage at, at Altamont, the stage was low. And I think that, you know, there was, a, there were a lot of things that were probably poor planning about this and uh, it, it kind of came to fruition. And so I think that the, um, the the powers that be, I guess, in the music industry really want to forget about it. They don't want us to know about that. They want the the nice kind of clean narrative of, hey, this is about, you know, how music is so good and wonderful and brings us together. And, you know, they were certainly trying to promote more uh, more of these uh, 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 rock festivals throughout the 70s, even Bowling Green State University, where, you know, where I got where, where I'm at, we they had one in the mid seventies uh, called the Poe ditch concert. And, you know, they were trying to do this and that had its problems too. And, and they, you know, they, they were still this emphasis. We want to do this, but you know, if people are thinking about Ultimat, they're not going to want to come to these things. Mm-hmm. And it's not, uh, it's not in our interest to sell tickets. And so I, I think we always got to think back to, okay, you know, you know, part of this is the cultural thing. And part of this is, is the meaning, but part of this is also, they want to sell tickets and they want to sell a product. And what do they want to do? Well, they want to sell more of these, these big, um, festivals because they think they could you know there's chances to make money and that goes right back to ultimate that you know well they they kind of had an inadequate space for doing this and so let's uh do what we can okay well you know we can hire hell's angels on the cheap we can you know we don't need to raise the stage we can save some money and and then it all kind of comes uh you know comes to fruition in this this violent event that that mars the thing and kind of sets things back I was watching a documentary recently. It was like an eight-part series or something. It was called This Is Pop. And it was mm-hmm. talking about the different music festivals. And I was I, I was telling my wife, she's sitting next to me on the couch, and I'm like, 
I wonder if they're going to bring up Altamont. And they didn't. It was, they talked about early, like the Moondog Coronation Ball. And they talked about a, a couple mm-hmm. others that were in the early 60s where they would have a flatbed truck and they would take it to different towns. And, uh, you know, they, they mentioned Bill Graham being the famed rock promoter mm-hmm. in San Francisco. And then, of course, Woodstock. And it was like a half hour thing on Woodstock. And then it just skipped over and went to talking about uh, festivals over in the UK and then all the way to Coachella and to Bonnaroo uh, and and of Woodstock. They didn't even bring up Woodstock 94 with the mud fights. They brought up Woodstock 99 with Fred Durst and Limp Biscuit and the fires and the violence that was happening. But Altamont was one of those where it kind of proved that, yeah, you know, not these music festivals are not always going to end up working out uh, the way you would <laughs> you would really want them to. Right. And uh, and like you said, the uh, when you actually if you see the footage that Mick Jagger is like you can be right next to Mick Jagger as he's playing. Like you can't even be yep. that close in your corner bar with a cover band playing Journey songs. <laughs> you know, like there's at least a separation between the crowd and the act, and you just see that the the Hell's Angels on like the side of the of and I, and I use stage in quotes because there's barely a stage there. Uh, it's just mm-hmm. it was interesting, and that's where it seems like towards the end of the song that he's talking about that horrible, horrible day that really just seems to be o- o- omitted from a lot of these music documentaries. Yeah, that's a great point, and uh, I didn't. I mean, I didn't know that about that documentary, but you're exactly right that they just they just gloss over it and as if you know this stuff happened. And and you got to wonder then, you know, because then it, it seems like well. You know, the violence didn't, you know, you could almost read that, that narrative as violence really doesn't hit these things until the 90s, and then it's a whole different cultural thing. Well, no, no, this was happening back in the, the 60s, and not all of these were so great, and, and many of them didn't work out. They, you know, they, they caused more problems than they were worth for, the, uh, for uh, the, the local promoters and the local communities, and, uh, you know, that's kind of like we see with, with other types of events, you know, where you know, we host the Olympics, and then afterwards we're, we're stuck with okay, now, you know, we've got all these, uh, we got to foot the bill for this and we got all these th- things to clean up because of it. Or, you know, you have a sporting event and, you know, big time Super Bowl or whatever. And, and uh, you know, whether people riot because they won or they lost or because, you know, there's just all kinds of um, uh, stuff that you got to do to, to make up for it. And the same thing was happening with these things. And, and yeah, that, that they, they consciously, and you're, you're right, though, that idea that you don't grow up learning about it. I mean, I didn't know about Ultimate until, uh, Ultimate until well into my 20s. And, uh, well, probably, I was probably in college, actually, and, uh, you know, taking a class on popular music. That's where I learned about, about Altamont. Before that, everybody knows what Woodstock is, but, but, you know, this other stuff is just not part of the, the standard narrative. Yeah, Lollapalooza, Coachella, uh, Bonnaroo, these are the big festivals. And then you have, like, kind of these one-off festivals where nowadays yep. that, uh, like, I always look at Danny Wimmer Presents, and he's the one who did, in Ohio, we had, it was called Rock on the Range for about 10 years, and then it's Sonic Temple, mm-hmm. but I don't, I'm not sure if it's going to come back. Um, but you had Carolina Rebellion, Aftershock, Louder Than Life in Louisville, Welcome to Rockville. There's all these, I think there's one in, um, I forgot where, it's like in uh, North Carolina, some strange uh, festival. I think it's, oh, I think it is Carolina Rebellion, might be, but... 
these are and, and the thing is they're carbon copies of each other because it's the same acts mm-hmm. are playing at all these festivals it's not like oh wait a second you know i could go to columbus to go see this but if i drive all the way you know or if i fly down to daytona <laughs> stone temple pilots is going to play and they're not going to be playing near me it's it, they're really just all the same so everyone's just kind of taking that concept and just going yeah whatever well we'll we'll bring a festival to town as opposed to you flocking to said festival so it's uh it's an interesting uh, co- concept what they're doing, but uh, uh, so American Pie is wrapping up, and we, you know, we slowed down towards the end of the song. And you had, uh, you know, I met a girl who sang the blues, and I asked for asked her for some happy news, but she just smiled and turned away. And you wonder who the girl is. Is the girl Janis Joplin? Is you know, is a girl? Is, is it actually a girl? Who are we talking about here? Um, I went down to the sacred store where I had heard the music uh, years before, but the man there said the music wouldn't play. And it's these are just interesting things that you can't keep out of the song. Again, if like we said earlier about yep. if you cut the song off, then this part doesn't, you know, you're forgetting like what made the song what it is. And by the way, here's a fun fact. I know you know this, uh, that you heard James Taylor and Carly Simon at the end as they're crescendoing as mm-hmm. the song is about to end. You can actually hear them in the background. You go, oh, yeah, that's definitely Carly. You just got to listen a little closer. <laughs> but they were in the background. They were friends. And they're like, yeah, well, mm-hmm. you know, as we build up at the end of the song. But I, I guess talk a little bit about this part of the song because this is one where I, I try to interpret that where you say, and in the streets the children scream, the lovers cried, and the poets dream, but not a word was spoken. The church bells all were broken, and the three men I admire the most, the Father, Son, the Holy Ghost, they caught the last train for the coast of the day the music died. So this, I think when we were talking about things that we can interpret earlier on in the song, or at least in the middle part, you go, okay, the jester, Bob Dylan, and you know Rolling Stones references and Beatles references and everything, but this one is just really hard to interpret. Yeah, it is. And, and again, McLean hasn't let on anything. Um, as you said, the, the, the girl who sang the blues, you know, on the one hand that, boy, that really feels like Janis Joplin, you know, and even the sort of she died earlier that year. Time. Yeah. Yeah. So she, right. So that idea that, you know, and, and that, that's part of this too, you know, the popularity here that, you know, uh, Jim Morrison had passed away, J- Jimi Hendrix, Janis Joplin, right. You know, we got that whole 27 club starting, you know, or, well, continuing, I guess, but, but, um, and that, you know, the, the, the folks who were involved in the sixties were, we're passing away. And yeah, the, the Janis Joplin reference seems to be at least, if not meant literally, at least to be implied. And, but it, at the same time, this is more about music. And so the girl could be Miss American Pie. And that is the, the music experience, you know, sort of embodied in a person. And so, you know, just wanted happy news, but wasn't getting anything. And the record store, you know, the idea that you could go down to the record store and listen to the album before you bought it. Well, that's getting done away with because now, you know, look, we want you to buy it. So you got to buy it and then you can go home and listen to it and decide whether you like it, you know, but we want you to buy it. So, so that, that experience of being able to, to do that was going away. And so then the, the rest of this becomes very, very um, much metaphor. It seems to be, and, you know, it, it, and, and built within um, religious metaphors to kind of, you know, make it that sort of make it more powerful, the church bells. And of course the father, son and Holy ghost. And yeah, he doesn't, He's never let on who that could be. Uh, I think, you know, one of the interpretations in our book is that it's the, the other three members of uh, Buddy Holly's band, the Crickets. And um, and I think that there's a lot of um, th- that there is a lot of credence to that interpretation. Um, 
Uh, my dad interprets it a little bit differently and says it's some of his, uh, some of, of, um, of Don McLean's influences. Uh, one of the other chapters in our book talks about it's the three civil rights uh, workers who were killed uh, uh, in the early 60s and uh, together, uh, you know, uh, um, uh, in Mississippi and, and that, you know, maybe this is about that. And, and there's, there's all kinds of other ways that people interpret this. And, and he, again, McLean, he, he leaves it up to us. You know, you can figure that however you want, but whatever it is, it's in this sort of religious terms that you can't, you can't help but think this is really, really significant because these are fundamental people to rock and roll. And they're just kind of throwing up their hands in the air and saying, you know what, it's all gone. And we're just going to go to the coast and just, uh, just, there are days out in, in anonymity out there. Eight minutes and 42 seconds on the LP. And they, they, they make the single, again, four minutes and 11 seconds or 431. But do you really need al- almost all that nine minutes to really uh, take take in what this song's about and what your interpretations can be? And uh, it's it's fascinating because, you know, you know, we've we've spent all this time talking about it. I mean, we've been, you know, we've been doing this for almost 50 minutes and it's amazing for one song, but I can't think of really any other songs that you can truly break down this much, especially nowadays because, and this is where, you know, I ruffle feathers when I talk, because I sound like an old man, get off my lawn, but how music has changed nowadays. And they always say, oh, well, of course you say that because every older generation says music is not as good as it once was. But one of the big things is, at least in those days, you were still making money off of uh, royalties and off of selling your record. Nowadays, in the, in the days of Spotify and the days of YouTube music and Apple music, these artists are not making a, like barely a penny on these, on these songs. Like right. you, I, I forgot what band I saw. It was a band called Ra. It was an early 2000s hard rock band. And they said, please subscribe on and hit the like button and like every song that we do, because for every 10,000 listens and likes, we get like five cents. You know, and it's incredible yeah. what what is going on nowadays. Now, this song is played, it seemed like on every format and every radio station in the 70s, all the way through into the 90s until ugh, Madonna covered it. <laughs> but uh, it, it, it was all... It was all over the place and that you were able to kind of make a lot of that that cash and also because of the artistic angle with it but also it was lucrative but i think nowadays you're not going to see a lot of popular music i mean i'm not saying that there's not good music out there and there's not good bands mm-hmm. and especially there is still very good rock music out there but you also have the fact that you're not making a ton of money on putting out an album nowadays and that you have to tour well what there's been this pandemic of some sorts. I don't know if you've heard of it in the last two years that a lot of bands haven't been able to tour. So they haven't been able to make that much money. And it, it's amazing uh, what's going on nowadays that you, so therefore you almost can't have an American Pie type of song that you can really break down with the lyrics and uh, and, and having different references and, you know, uh, a lot of uh, kind of what's, what's up for interpretation at that point. And I, I don't know what, what it's going to take to get back to those days who knows but it this is why this song is so popular even 50 years later yeah yeah i think it really speaks to that and i think you know i think that that a lot of what you're you're describing was developing in the early 70s i think of uh, billy joel's song the entertainer and he has the line about you got to cut it down to 305 you know that you know that you gotta you know that he there there were clearly folks and uh 
and even one of the essays in our book talks a little bit about this, that, you know, the critiques of the music industry. And I think that that's exactly what McLean, or at least one of the things that McLean was, was uh, railing against in this song was that he was already seeing that, that, you know, everything was, and you mentioned the Brill building. I mean, this was obviously, you know, had gone on since the late fifties, early sixties. And, and he was saying that that room, the room, you know, that was always there, but that room for this kind of um, art, as I guess, you know, he would call it, um, and folks, folks, uh, sympathetic would call it, you know, this kind of art is the room for that is, is, is going away. And we, we just can't do this kind of stuff anymore. And so, um, I think in the 50 years since that's only consolidated. And so like, you, like you said, there are places where I think you can find that stuff. And, uh, but, uh, but a lot of what is pop music is much, you know, it, and they've, they've had 50 more years to, to, to figure out how to, um, how to package this and how to fabricate this. Uh, at the same time, those of us who, you know, who study popular culture know that you can never 100% get that. You, there's always going to be, and rock and roll feeds this, there's always going to be that element that, that sort of gets past the commercial um, drives of the music industry. And, you know, punk did that, uh, grunge did some of that, uh, rap did that, you know, so we can, we have these elements. And I think that that music's out there um, and, you you just you just have to sometimes work harder to find it or you have to recognize that it's being done in these more sort of um um secretive kind of ways that you know so i mean one interesting thing uh taylor swift just broke uh don mclean's record for the longest song to hit number one right her her all too well is 10 minutes long and so it broke his record and mclean was like hey that's cool with me you know and, um, you know, what Taylor Swift's been doing, and I mean, Taylor Swift's, you know, pop, right? And, but what she's been doing lately with she's putting out her own versions of her old albums is perhaps a, 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 a something we can look at as somebody who finally, you know, she's at her point in her career. She's in her early 30s. She's established. She's well-known. You know, people like her. Um, you know, she's got a, a clear audience out there saying, okay, you know what? I'm going to now take the career by, by, by my horns, I'm going to take it and I'm going to say, this is the direction I want to go. And, and, you know, it'd be, it, I'm interested to see where her music goes forward. I mean, it's still going to be pop, but does it have these elements to it that are sort of hidden in there? It's kind of becomes a different kind of Easter egg. Um, and, you know, other places I look, I, I, I listen to a lot of uh, contemporary alt pop stuff and, you know, even a, a local band out of Ohio, 21 pilots, I think mm-hmm. their, their, their newest album is, uh, really captures the pandemic experience in a lot of ways. And they've, they've kind of gotten back to touring, but they, um, you know, they, they, they had a song called level of concern and then they put out an album just after that. They're really speaking to uh, some of the, the, the experiences that folks have had over the last couple of years and uh, you know, what was going on as they were trying to make music and put out new music and, and, and make a career, continue to make a career out of this. Yeah. Some of the songs that I really like the most are ones where the message is not, just beating over your head with it where if you are if you're listening to something you're like oh okay i get what you're talking about but i'm looking here it's uh, insider.com has songs that aren't really what you think they are like for example uh rihanna has a song called snm but it's not actually about kink culture sex rem's the one i love <laughs> right. not necessarily about a, a, it's not no. about love um no. google dolls slide <laughs> probably one of the two biggest songs now here, here's two two different songs that were about abortion slide it was about an unplanned pregnancy and it says you want to get married well yeah it's because 
you know, it was it was either we get an right. abortion or, or whatever. But then there's another song about abortion, which was Brick by Ben Folds Five. That, mm-hmm. it, you know, it, it basically explicitly says that that's where they're going to is going to the clinic. And, you know, a good riddance time of your life is not about, you know, I hope mm-hmm. you have the time. Like when you see all these people who are uh, going out and, uh, you know, using them for graduations. And uh, right. I, I, I know a band, uh, Eve Six, I got to see them a few times and I talked to the lead singer and he's like, yeah, it's weird that everybody uses Here's to the Night is a prom song, even though none of yep. us in the band even went to prom we didn't even we didn't even <laughs> want to be a part of it so it's 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 fun well and then my favorite here's another one that came up on the list is semi-charmed life and it was so funny i had friends mm-hmm. of mine that were talking about this uh, saying i had no idea it was about drugs and i'm like yep. what part about the song that you thought it wasn't about drugs you know uh the sky was gold, it was rose. I was taking sips of it to my nose. I wish it could get back there someplace, back there, smiling in the pictures you would take. Uh-huh. Jill and crystal meth will lift you up until you break. You won't stop. I won't come down and keep stock with the TikTok rhythm. I bumped for the drop, and then I bumped up. I took the hit that I was given, and I bumped again, and I bumped again. Uh, he's explicitly talking about drugs there. What part of the song did you not think about? But... You know, again, some of those songs that I, when you're like, oh, I had no idea. And, and American Pie is one of those where when you truly break down the cultural impact of the song that you go, man, that's it, it's deeper than I thought. And I know I've done this with several people where they heard the song for years and then I told them about wh- how I interpret it. And they're like, I-, I didn't even realize that. Now I actually really like this song. Yeah, yeah, it, it really, uh, that's again, one of the sort of in, in enduring legacies of the song it it fits right into that that spirit of songs that that do that 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 have these inter and then people don't realize it and then you start keying them into it and they 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 suddenly realize wow there's a lot more to this and it was one that really sort of when it hit in the early 70s it hit right at the right moment and caught just the right appeal to to become a number one hit yeah the uh it's uh, and I, I got to say, I used to host karaoke shows and I would be at a bar. And if there was a way where I can get people out of the bar, where I can go home and I can go home at a decent hour. And when I say decent hour is about two o'clock in the morning and not four mm-hmm. o'clock is that I would sing karaoke and it would either be, well, I would do American Pie sometimes. And then I would also do Wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald. And if you're going to do a song where you want to see people who are having a good time and you want them to go home and they're going to ask for their check, it's to do the legend lives on from the chip one down. And when they start hearing that, yeah, I'm going to get the check. Like, good. Yes, it's working. Go home, people. <laughs> All those amazing DJ tricks, right, that you learn. <laughs> oh, yeah. Or, or you know, if you, if you're, like I said, if you're having a smoke break, you play Stranglehold, the live version, yep. or anything by Rush, and then you go out and, you know, Go ahead, get some fresh air. So, well, Doctor Shuck, this has been fantastic. I really appreciate you taking the time with me. And uh, uh, if you want to promote uh, where we can find you online and where we can get some of your work, I know you have uh, you co-wrote the the book, uh, the 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 essays talking about American Pie called "Do You Believe in Rock and Roll?" Uh, and any uh, your other work out there. Yeah. So yeah, the book is "Do You Believe in Rock and Roll?" Uh, essays on Don McLean's American Pie. It's uh, by me and my my father, and it's through McFarland Press. Um, and it's still available. Um, and then, uh, yeah, if you want to see, I mean, the only other, the other thing I would mention um, in terms of what I do in terms of music, uh, my old college roommate, uh, Mark Majors, uh, he, he started up a, a website called TunesMate, and we, we write about music every day on there. I, 
I have a daily feature called the Daily 80s Flashback, and we do. Uh, I have another. You'll, uh, Don McLean will be showing up because uh, I have a feature on there called "It Happened 50 Years Ago," and uh, we, we it's really about the joy of music. And so, um, if you want to kind of see some more on you know various all kinds of aspects of music and and thoughts on it, that's another place. And then, of course, yeah, the book. Well, it's it's been this has been fantastic. I'm, I'm glad to finally talk to somebody about that who. Who, who really knows this song and to really break it down too much. I mean, I'm sure there's people probably listening. They're like, my goodness, you really, you guys really did a number on this song. But <laughs> look again, it's uh, since he's, since Don McLean is not going to come out here with a press conference anytime soon or ever and say, okay, folks, let's break this down line for line. This is how we interpret it. And I'm interested to hear any listeners and listener feedback and what you think, uh, like the jester or the king and queen or, uh, which Lenin are we talking about and all of that? I'm really interested. But again, uh, Dr. Shuck, thanks so much for, for being on, and it's really been a pleasure. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I've really enjoyed the conversation. Absolutely, and, and have a great New Year.